Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. All right, welcome everyone back to another edition of New Books in Education. This is your host, Ryan Allen, and today I'm excited to bring on Dr. Damien Sojoyner, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, Irvine, and I'm excited to talk about his book, First Strike Educational... All right, welcome everyone back to another edition of New Books in Education. This is your host, Ryan Allen, and today I'm excited to bring on Dr. Damien Sojoyner, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, Irvine, and I'm excited to talk about his book, First Strike Educational Enclosures in Black Los Angeles, and this is from University of Minnesota Press, 2016. Uh, Dr. Sojoyner, thank you for coming on today. Ryan, thank you very much for having me. Fantastic, and and if we could maybe just uh, give our audience a little bit of background on yourself. How did you come along this subject? How did you get into um, education? Well, I, I come from a family of educators. Uh, my grandfather on my mom's side uh, was an educator. He taught at a black college in Houston, Texas. And when he and his family moved from Houston to L.A., he actually couldn't find a job uh, teaching, not even in secondary or primary school. Um, but that's that gene sort of, I guess, more or less passed down in a proverbial way. Uh, my mom was a teacher. I have several aunts that are teachers as well. So I think maybe more than anything, that's how I sort of gravitated towards uh, education in general. Sure. Uh, sure. However, I think also my own personal experience of, of growing up, um, being in schools during 1980s, 1990s, uh, middle school and high school, and um, having the experience of something sort of being a little bit off. And what I mean by that was uh, the amount of surveillance uh, via either uh, official police or school police, um, several forms of security to get into school, um, checking in with your ID at several checkpoints, um, just gates and barbed wire everywhere. And that has not subsided. It seems to have increased uh, as time has gone on. Mm-hmm. So that, uh, I think that's sort of what drew me uh, to it. Um, and in terms of looking at the relationship between schools and prisons, I think it was growing up in the middle of the expansion of prisons, in particular in California, the massive expansion of prisons within the state, mm-hmm. uh, having family members who were incarcerated. Um, but, but then also uh, having this other sort of massive state structure in the form of education that seemed to be doing many of the same things, but in a different light. Um, right. So that sort of drew me to look at uh, how these two entities were uh, connected. Right. right. And in, in, in the book, you, you talk about the, uh, you know, your own experience, I think, and sort of the juxtaposition between uh, seeing a, a traditional or predominantly 
um, white school and maybe with your experience. So I think what, what you're talking about now is, is perfect uh, to open us up in, into the book um, if, if we can get started. Um, first, I think maybe you open up with the, uh, addressing the idea uh, or in, in the early chapter of a school-to-prison pipeline and sort of, I think you, you dub it a STPP. So can you kind of talk about that term and maybe uh, why, why it might also be uh, problematic as well? So sure. So the term school-to-prison pipeline was first developed um, in the mid-1980s and, and uh, further developed in the early 90s by community activists who were um, looking to explain what was happening with schools because um, you had the intensification of policing. The, the drastic anticipation of policing uh, on school grounds. And so schools, uh, many groups saw as turning uh, from less of a place of um, education and more uh, to a training ground for, uh, for prisons. This uh, sort of phrasing and um, method was then more or less sort of co-opted uh, by the state. And what I mean by the state, like the, the formal wing of the state, sure. uh, the, the Department of Ed, um, the state of California has actually uh, used it several times to host symposiums. Um, it has become a, f- a part of the sort of formal um, process processes of understanding uh, education within black schools. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, now, what happens? Uh, what happened during this co-optation uh, process, by and large, was a, an erasure of the organizing that was key in bringing it to the fore um, back in the mid '80s and early '90s. But then also to change the direction and scope of what education has been historically in the United States, and then also to um, more or less take away the potency of understanding. Um, uh, what's going on with prisons. And what I mean by that uh, is that within this arc of the school-to-prison pipeline, we understand schools to be this sort of uh, utopic endeavor that has been somehow corrupted uh, by prisons and by prison expansion to a certain extent. Um, the solution for that by the state has not been to address the root causes of prison expansion or even the root causes of what's going on within education, but rather to address the individual behavior of students. And so that's where the sort of bastardization of uh, restorative justice has come in um, and placed the locus on students to just admit to their wrong behaviors. And if they can change their behaviors, then somehow, some way, they will not go to, quote unquote, prisons. This is being a, a large part of it. Mm. Now, what this completely does away with is the fact that schools have been a central part of black containment even prior to the massive expansion of prisons, in particular within the state of California. Mm-hmm. Um, so that prisons have, during the 1980s, 1990s, Ruth Wilson Gilmore um, in her wonderful book, Golden Gulag, describes that uh, what took place in California was the largest expansion of prisons in the history of the world. And so while you have this massive uh, prison expansion, much of the techniques of control that we associate with prisons, lockdowns and surveillance of that type and bars and things of this nature um, and policing in particular were already happening in education. And so 
uh, I write about that briefly in a book and in another article sure. Uh, sure. as well. That uh, in nineteen late nineteen sixties, you see this happen within public schools, in particular with black schools in LA, um, and that only intensifies. So, in many ways, it's the sort of a long way of getting to this is that rather than look at it as a school to prison pipeline, we really need to look at in what ways actually did education uh, inform the development of prisons. And so rather than look at it as a linear direction from schools to prisons, there's actually an articulation that's going back and forth between the two in some ways. And in, in some instances, uh, what I've called enclosures mm-hmm. um, in the book, um, uh, sometimes addressed only in facets of education, sometimes only happened within prison, sometimes there was a back and forth. But this notion that it is uni- unilateral from schools to prisons actually does us a disservice in trying to, if you, if the goal is really to address what's happening, A, in prisons, but then also what's happening within the realm of education, it does us a disservice of understanding the root causes of these uh, issues. Sure, sure. So, I mean, you, you kind of already mentioned it, uh, the idea of enclosures and in, in chapter one, uh, which you call the problem of black genius, uh, black cultural enclosures. Uh, you, you kind of, I guess you introduce uh, County High School. Um, so can you maybe talk about uh, working with that school and what it was like in that school? And you also, in that, in that chapter, um, talk about sort of West, Western Christianity um, and how, how it uh, has affected um, the, the black community. Sure. So, um, one of the ways in which, so the failure of the school to prison pipeline to address one of the the key facets is what happens in these schools outside of the range of discipline. Mm. And so I think the school to prison pipeline does a very good job of looking at rates of suspension, detention, expulsion, and showing how there's great disproportionality, uh, when it comes to race and how these forms of discipline are meted out. What's not looked at, however, is how uh, teaching pedagogically and curriculum has been completely eviscerated. And the argument that I make in the book is that black culture in particular has been completely removed from public education. And black culture, meaning the expression of black culture uh, itself, music, uh, the arts, dance, performance, language, all of these things have been under severe attack. And I look at uh, Christianity um, because an argument that I'm making here is that the roots of this are within Western forms of Christian domination. And so if you take a step back and just look at uh, um, what took place, for example, during slavery and how Christianity was uh, uh, complicit directly complicit in muting all forms of expressions of uh, the former enslaved um, from the moment of literally from the moment of stepping onto the boat uh, to once um, the enslaved are here on plantations, you can see that the intent was to dampen and stop uh, black forms of cultural expression because it was understood that these were at the base of revolt and rebellion on one hand, but on the other hand, um, also went against every um, type of, for lack of a better word, stereotype that said that black people had no past, no mm-hmm. historical past. 
Because if they had a historical past, um, then they wouldn't. Uh, if they, let me rephrase: if they did not have a historical past, then how could they bring with them all of this uh, knowledge? So that has to be completely changed and, st- and stopped in order to justify the slavery as an enterprise, because um, completely negated uh, blackness uh, in that way. Sure. 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 Uh, if if I could ask you also uh, just about the the CHS the school that uh, that you sort of introduce us to what well uh, how, how did you sort of get involved uh, or or find them and what was your what was your experience uh, working with the school? So I was a roving sub at the school, roving mm-hmm. long term sub at the school um, for a year for school year, um, and so I had my experience uh, was actually. Um, it was liminal mm. in, in, in the sense that uh, as a sub, you sort of, uh, your employment is a little bit precarious on one hand. Sure. But on the other hand, I was sort of free to do certain things that other teachers weren't able to do, um, which is because, you know, you have to, as a teacher, you have to abide by the state standards, which are very limiting um, because at that time, California just re- recently changed it. But at that time, um, the state standards had to, uh, were in line with the state exit exam, mm-hmm. um, which were proven to pretty much prove nothing, uh, at all. Um, but, uh, being as a roving sub, oftentimes I was the left without a plan of action for the day. And so I would have to ask the students, you know, what did you do yesterday? And we sort of, we just sort of riff mm-hmm. off of that. Um, and that provided some flexibility to teach upon the material, but in a way that was much different than what the standards uh, offered. Um, so uh, in that way, my experience uh, was very good. The school as a whole, um, however, uh, however, was in line with what we talked about earlier. Sure. That there was massive levels of security uh, on campus. There was a huge gate around the school. You had to show your ID when you went in. There was... Uh, sheriffs that were on the outside. There was school police that were inside. There was staffing, school security staffing as well inside. So you and the school was set up by a series of fences that were locked off at certain times of day. Literally, would funnel kids into certain areas of the school. Mm-hmm. So you always got the sense that you were being watched, right? Always, like constantly being watched. And uh, there was a, a sheriff's department on campus. Uh, as well, so that if anything happened at all, the smallest infraction, the threat of being sent to the sheriff's department and what would follow with that was always on your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can be issued a citation on campus for just looking like you're about to get into a fight and that carry with it punitive um, uh, forms of discipline in terms of money you have to pay for, right. court right. fees, court costs. That whole system would kick in really, really fast. Right. right. Oh, if I can interject and just ask a question on that account, uh, you talk about in, in chapter three, uh, which you call uh, land of smoke and mirrors, the meaning of uh, punishment and control. Uh, you talk about this policy as a way to uh, delegitimize organization efforts. Um, can you maybe talk a little about that? Yeah. So that, that, that has a, a longer history, mm. um, which dates back to 
when, in particular in California, I should sure, say, sure. In, 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 in Southern California, when you had uh, a lot of black Southerners first came here from Texas and Louisiana into the state. Um, and the initial uh, interaction between uh, these schools that uh, more or less became black over to over a period of roughly five to 10 years was very tense with uh, the white families that were there. Mm-hmm. So there was a uh, race, race riots that uh, happened most famously at Fremont high school in the late 1940s. Um, but what, what was also happening was a lot of organizing that was taking place mm-hmm. on these high school campuses mm-hmm. where organizations such as the black Panther party, um, we're on campus and recruiting students on one hand, right? And then what you see later on is that this same effort takes up in earnest uh, with the Crips and the Bloods. Mm. Now, the Crips, when, uh, automatically, when you say Crips and Bloods, just like notions of wild violence, like, pops up. But when you actually go back and look at the origins of these groups, it's much different than what we understand them to be right now. <clears throat> so, uh, and the origins being is that... Uh, they were literally radical groups that were more or less like the offspring of the Black Panther Party, um, by and large. So, uh, this uh, type of organizing had to be clamped down. So, by the time that you get to the 2000s, what you see is the genealogy of that logic played out with just over abundance of policing, mm-hmm. which is not about crime or safety, but which is making sure that they're trying to control this this black population, which comes from this history of organizing against the very thing that they're being held down in these schools for in the first place. Yeah. So on on that notion, again, uh, Uh, in in your, in your next chapter, you, you also talk about the uh, limits of, of organizing in maybe a similar way, but um, through this uh, heteronormative uh, sort of, masculinity uh can you can you maybe get into uh, a little uh, of how that might uh have formulated and then uh, again how how that uh is specifically uh organizing is, is a part of that as well right so that um the solution to uh sort of what's been constructed as black educational failure mm-hmm. has been uh, to that, you know, black in particular, this focuses on black boys. Sure. That black boys need black men in their life, and if they have black men in their life as mentors, then this would be the golden ticket to helping these black boys sort of see the error in their ways and becoming uh, proper citizens. Now, this is an old tactic, a very old tactic. Uh, most famously, um, that was brought up with. Uh, the Moynihan Report, um, but it even predates that. There's uh, at the turn of the 20th century. Um, there's a a, a a meeting of black Catholics, um, and and they're discussing what's wrong with the black family, and it goes back to this: like the black, what's wrong with the black family is that there's no men around, and so the roots of this are very, 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 very uh, old. However, for the the current moment. Um, the argument that black boys just need black men in their lives is a is does much harm to the black community as a whole. And this argument is is made wonderfully by Beth Ritchie in her book 
Arrested Justice, which talks about the prison system and the problematics of focusing uh, inherently on black men as the problem um, and what that does to the black community, but the, also the violence that it mets out against black women. Mm-hmm. And what I track uh, is what happens when you focus solely on black men and all of the violence that's going on with black women, it becomes completely ignored. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I argue that much of the problem and much of the issues in terms of violence and the reproduction of violence <clears throat> that happens uh, with black boys um, is the root causes of this are in fact violence that are, that is going on, um, uh, taken on a, uh, and perpetuated against black women. Mm-hmm. And so that if you don't get at the root cause of the violence or what's looked at as in terms of failure with, with within the community, then you're going to have a serious, serious problem. Um, now, that, that chapter uh, sort of goes in different directions in different places. Sure, sure, sure. Um, but the, the reason why it does that um, is to understand how complex this issue is. And it's being just condensed down to we need to focus on black boys. Mm-hmm. Um, which is highly problematic. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, this all of the subjects we're talking about, I think, in this book have this uh, uh, complexity, which I think you, you certainly bring out. And, and, and to the viewer, if, if you're interested in this and want to hear more, definitely um, check out the book by, by all means. Um, but and if we could keep keep moving along, uh, you know, we we get sort of toward, to the end of your book and you start to provide... Um, kind of a historical overview um, from sort of industrialization uh, beyond uh, and, and specifically for these what you call educational uh, enclosures, um, almost countering uh, this like black freedom movement or other movements that are sort of looking to replace um, some of the, the regimes. Can you maybe uh, talk a little bit about that sort of overview? Or, sure, yeah. sure. So um, what, what I do in that chapter is to show that uh, the first call for, for public education in the United States to have uh, an educated populace is during Reconstruction. Um, and this is a radical move because um, the, the intent, the aim of it is to uh, free up the economic base that was in the planter class uh, through the funding of education that just won't educate uh, black people, um, per se, but would educate everybody, women, poor whites, the vast majority of the, of the population who did not have access to education at all. Mm-hmm. This plan becomes completely co-opted by the finance and industrial um, base in the North, whose intent is not at all um, to have uh, an educated populace, but rather they want to reproduce class in very strict ways. Because you know we have to remember that uh, in the South, it pretty much was only two classes. You have the very wealthy and the very poor, and that was it. Mm. And the North's intent is to remake class, right? You need a strong middle class. And so their form of, of education goes a long ways uh, to make sure that this happens. And so education, in that sense, public education be, be, uh, gets hijacked uh, by that plan. And so that plan more or less uh, is put into action on a federal national stage and in various states in order to both remake the South, but then also to um, form a public education base that is going to uh, both reproduce a middle class on one hand, 
but then also um, to dampen any type of of uh, resistance efforts to the state, to the United States. And this is what Reconstruction was, in fact, doing, was, was it sort of breaking up uh, the United States away from a state enterprise and more to uh, localized forms of government. And not in terms of like state rights, mm-hmm. but that black folks literally were, were these projects, these experiments, were like were just left alone and left to their own devices and had their own ways of making education. And this proved to be very dangerous because they no longer need the state and, 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 and the state in terms of uh, a unit of control. So um, as you look to see how education unfolds from that point forward, what you see is this constant contestation between black people who are asserting for a particular type of education and various manifestations that want to make sure that that type of education does not become the norm. Because if that becomes a norm, then you have serious problems for the reproduction of class, the reproduction of race, the reproduction of gender, all these things through which now education serves as a key part of doing that. And so when we get to uh, a major part of that chapter, which looks at testing as well and the effect of what testing has done, the intent is to look back, to, to go back and see what, what, why was testing put in school in the first place? Because right now we understand testing and standardized testing as being sort of normative that you need it in school. When in fact the intent of testing uh, was to uh, more or less um, serve as a as a tool. Um, and this was sort of kicked in during uh, Nixon's administration was to serve as a tool to legitimate black failure. Mm -hmm. So that if you can uh, show in a sort of a business model, like sort of nuts and bolts numbers, that uh, people fail based upon their own merit, then you can't have any claims of why you should be educated, right? So why you should progress forward, whether it be from one particular school to another school, uh, whether it be from uh, to have access to a magnet program, rather have access to college, all these things become quantified. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, w- without getting into the mechanizations of testing and what uh, um, the, the racial um, biases within all these tests, um, the uh, inherent goal was to connect how do we move from this industrial model all the way to this current model? And testing sort of serves as a bridge for the latter part of that. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that especially uh, sort of the last part of that is so relevant to a lot of the conversations we're having uh, in education right right now, uh, even with um, you know the presidential candidates and, and some of their uh, differences um, on educational views. Uh, but I guess we're kind of getting to the end of the interview, and uh, if we could, maybe just get your final word on what what you would like people to kind of take away when they read read your book, or what you would like them to think about when they're reading it. And then also, uh, what are you working on next? What's what's your next uh, sort of project? Okay, um, so from the book, I, uh, more than anything, would just be a serious reckoning with the root causes of um, sort of prison development and the calamity within education right now. Um, and, to, and to not sort of look at <clears throat> these uh, terms, which 
um, seem to make sense, uh, school to prison pipelines and things of this nature, but to really dig deeper um, uh, to, to figure out what's going on. And hopefully my book uh, provides the means uh, of doing that. Um, and what I'm working on uh, right now is a new project on fugitivity, uh, black fugitivity uh, in uh, current spaces. So in, it's, it's, it's situated in L.A. Mm. Um, and there's an argument that I'm making um, in terms of, of understanding uh, the quote-unquote dropouts. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but making that, changing the framing of that and looking at it in, in the frame of black fugitivity and understanding that uh, removing oneself from school is a logical decision um, based upon all of the issues that we more or less have, have discussed uh, right now. Um, that when you have rampant policing, um, the evisceration of uh, what we think would be forms of, of, of education, what sense does it in fact make to go to school? Because it's not this, this, what we see right now, this is not an education at all. It's a particular type of training, but it's not education. Another, I think, another important and yeah. uh, certainly relevant certainly issue for, for today. So we'll look forward to that. Uh, but in the meantime, I encourage everybody to go check out. First Strike, Educational Enclosures in Black Los Angeles. And I want to thank the author, Dr. Damien Sojoyner, for joining us today. Um, Thank you for coming. Um, And everyone out there, uh, I hope you learned something.